I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Welcome to the Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds. Somebody wrote something that I've been thinking. Uh, as a matter of fact, that somebody is Matt Viser in the Washington Post. How do I even get into this subject? I think with historical reference. I am right now on Abraham Lincoln Online. And I'm looking at the Bixby letter. Do you know the story of the Bixby letter? In the autumn of 1864, Massachusetts Governor John A. Andrew wrote to President Lincoln asking him to express condolences to Mrs. Lydia Bixby, a widow believed to have lost five sons during the Civil War. Lincoln's letter to her was printed by the Boston Evening Transcript. Later, it was revealed that only two of Mrs. Bixby's five sons died in battle, Charles and Oliver, Of the remainder, one deserted the army, one was honorably discharged, another deserted or died a prisoner of war. The authorship of the letter has been debated by scholars, some of whom believe it was written instead by John Hay, one of Lincoln's White House secretaries. Apparently, the original letter was destroyed by the newspaper editor after publication or by Mrs. Bixby, who may have been a Confederate sympathizer and disliked President Lincoln. Copies of an early forgery have been circulating for many years, causing some people to believe they possess the original letter. That's all very interesting, but it doesn't take away from the sum and substance of the way in which President Lincoln conveyed sympathy, condolences to a grieving mother. What did he say? Dateline Executive Mansion, Washington, November 21, 1864. Dear Madam, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. Pay attention to this paragraph. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any word of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours, very sincerely and respectfully, 
A. Lincoln. I don't know how many of her kids really died gloriously in battle. I'm not sure who possesses, if anyone, the original of the Bixby letter. But what I know to a certainty is that that's about as well said as it can be. For a commander-in-chief, for a president to extend condolences and blessings. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any word of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming, but I cannot refrain from tendering you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the republic they died to serve. Now, why am I bringing that up one day after we are formally and finally out of Afghanistan? And what does Matt Viser of the Washington Post have to do with it? Take a look in today's newsletter. I hope you're a subscriber. It's worthy and it's free. But posted at Smirconish.com today is a piece that Matt Viser wrote, which Politico Playbook in its newsletter this morning captioned, Consoler in Chief No More. And what Matt Viser writes about is what went on Sunday in a quiet room at the Dover Air Force Base when President Biden was seeking to console the families of the 13 who died in Kabul last Thursday. Here's what Matt Viser wrote, among other things. President Biden had made his way on Sunday around a quiet room at Dover Air Force Base, a chamber filled with couches and chairs, with dignitaries and grieving families huddling together as the president came to speak to them privately, one family at a time. Mark Schmitz told a military officer the night before that he wasn't much interested in speaking to a president he did not vote for, one whose execution of the Afghan pullout he disdains, and one he now blames for the death of his 20-year-old son, Jared. But overnight, sleeping in a nondescript hotel nearby, Schmitz changed his mind, so on that dreary morning, he and his ex-wife were approached by Biden after he'd talked to all the other families. But by his own account, Schmitz glared hard at the president, so Biden spent more time looking at his ex-wife, repeatedly invoking his own son, Beau, who died six years ago. Schmitz did not want to hear about Bo. He wanted to talk about Jared. Eventually, the parents took out a photo to show to Biden. I said, don't you ever forget that name. Don't you ever forget that face. Don't you ever forget the name of the other 12, Schmitz said, and take some time to learn their stories. Biden did not seem to like that, Schmitz recalled, and he bristled, offering a blunt response, I do know their stories. And then Matt Viser in the Post goes on to discuss some of the other interactions and repartee between the president and the family, as I guess presented by the family members to the reporter from the Washington Post. Um, For example, the family of Marine Corps Lance Corporal Riley McCollum, too, had mixed emotions when it came time to decide whether to talk with the president. McCollum's sisters and father joined his widow, Jenna McCollum, on the trip to Dover, but when it came time to meet Biden, only Jenna went in. Afterward, one of the sisters, Royce McCollum, said Jenna felt the president's words were scripted and shallow, a conversation that lasted only a couple of minutes, quote, in total disregard to the loss of our Marine, our brother, son, husband, and father. 
The White House declined to comment on Biden's conversations with the grieving families, saying those exchanges should remain private. But last week, after the news of the deaths emerged, the president publicly recalled how he and his wife, Jill, lost Beau, who served in Iraq before being diagnosed with an aggressive cancer. I got to that part of Matt Visor's story today and I said, yeah, I, I remember that. And, and I remember feeling a little bit unsettled. It was last Thursday when the president made his first remarks about the attack at Kabul that had killed scores of people, but including 13 U.S. service members. And there was a particular part of the speech that drew my attention. It was this. Jill and I, our hearts ache, like I'm sure all of you do as well, for all those Afghan families who lost loved ones, including small children, or been wounded in this vicious attack. And we're outraged as well as heartbroken. <clears throat> Being the father of an Army major who served for a year in Iraq and before that was in Kosovo as a U.S. attorney for better part of six months in the middle of a war. When he came home after a year in, a, in Iraq, he was diagnosed, like many, many coming home, with an aggressive and lethal cancer of the brain. We lost. We have some sense, like many of you do, what the families of these brave heroes are feeling today. You get this feeling like you're being sucked into a black hole in the middle of your chest. There's no way out. My heart aches for you. But I know this. We have a continuing obligation, <clears throat> a sacred obligation to all of you, the families of those heroes. That obligation is not temporary. It lasts forever. Look, this is really tough stuff. It gets no more difficult than this subject matter. I can't imagine a fate worse than a parent losing a child. And no one has been through what Joe Biden has been through. I mean, Joe Biden, as you know, in 1972, lost his young wife, lost a a daughter, he himself, as the Washington Post points out, suffered from brain aneurysms in the late 80s that were so significant that a priest came to read him last rites. And then he lost Bo, by all accounts, a prince of a man. I had the privilege of, of interviewing him and meeting him, but interviewing him stands out in my mind. Um, his Bo Biden... I don't think I've, I've really told this before, but just in this one of these two degree of separation kind of stories, Bo was a member of the same fraternity as our middle son. And the tradition in the house is that after you've lived in a room, a tiny placard goes on the door so that you walk to the door and the door is just littered with with names of people who've lived, students who lived, fraternity brothers who lived in that room. You know, my son very uh, reverentially took a pencil etching of Bo's nameplate. 
He didn't live in that same room. My son was the president of the fraternity in his era several years after Bo. And I say this with the utmost respect for Bo's service. And I said nothing last Thursday. It was all so raw, and I just, ooh, I'm not sure. What, what ran through my mind? I'm not sure. Like, I get it. You are, Mr. President, uniquely qualified to speak about grief. But I don't know if this is the time and the place. I just don't know if this is the time and the place. And then I'm reading Matt Visor's story today, and it, 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 it continues. He talks about uh, what Joe Biden had been through. And he says this. And Bo died of brain cancer in 2015. Biden has often talked of Bo's service in the Delaware National Guard and his deployment to Iraq as a way to convey his empathy with the worry that faces military families. He has at times wondered aloud whether Bo's exposure to burn pits while in Iraq was the reason he developed brain cancer. But his life experiences, this is the key graph, I think, in Matt Visor's assessment that caused me to want to share this with all of you today. But his life experiences, which so often have provided the connective tissue to help him reach those immersed in grief, at times seem to fall flat on this occasion, meaning at Dover this weekend. For the first time, Biden was meeting with relatives, some of whom held him responsible for the death of their loved one. And they did not necessarily view Biden's suffering as directly relevant to theirs. And then this father is quoted as saying when he just kept talking about his son so much, it was just my interest was lost in that. I was more focused on my own son than what happened with him and his son. I'm not trying to insult the president, but it it just didn't seem that appropriate to spend that much time on his own son. I think it was all him trying to say he understood grief, Schmitz said. But when you're the one responsible for ultimately the way things went down, you kind of feel that person should own it a little bit more. Our son is now gone because of a direct decision or game plan or lack thereof that he put in place. So the Washington Post goes to White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki yesterday. She declined to comment on Biden's interactions with the family members. Here's what she did say, quote, while his son did not lose his life directly in combat as they did or directly at the hands of a terrorist as these families did that they're mourning, he knows firsthand That there's nothing you can say, nothing you can convey to ease the pain and to ease what all of these families are going through. When I read that thought, I thought, you know, the, the way to address this is probably for him to speak of knowing the grief and pain. This is my this is my way of uh, of of playing Solomon here as to how can how can the president appropriately say If anybody knows about loss and pain and grief, it's me. But not in a way that causes them to say, hey, you know, this is now not relevant. And I think the answer is for him to say, I know what it feels like without speaking with specificity about his own son's loss or the loss of his own son. 
further along in the uh, in in the piece. Um, some of the grieving relatives felt a need to interact directly with the president after losing their loved one, including Jenna McCollum, who married Riley McCollum just six months ago and is due to give birth to the couple's child next month. Gigi wanted to look him in the eye and hear him. McCollum's sister, Royce, said in a text message to The Washington Post using Jenna's nickname. Royce recounted that Jenna left disappointed. The president, she said, kept checking his watch and bringing up Bo. The watch thing was inexcusable. I saw it. I know they play it on a loop at Fox. I'm not caught up in that. But it reminded me of it reminded me in in far uh, less emotional circumstances when when Bush 41 in the middle of a debate looked at his. I mean, it's just like a no, no. There was no reason whatsoever. I don't care what. Remove it from your wrist. Truly put it in your pocket before you even before you even go and uh, uh, and greet greet these. Look, I can't imagine how difficult it must be for the president to his credit to go to Dover and make himself available. Imagine what it felt like for him to stand in that room with all these folks. So I said, this is this is just a horrible subject, but it's on my mind. It's being written about. It's getting a lot of attention. Last night on Hannity, he had two of the fathers, one of them, Mark Schmitz, who's written about in this Matt Visor piece, who said this. Mark, you met with Biden over the weekend. How did that go? Well, initially, I wasn't going to meet with him, um, but then I felt I owed it to my son to uh, at least have some words with him about how I felt. And uh, uh, it, it didn't go well. Um, he talked a bit more about his own son than he did my son, and that, that didn't sit well with me. I don't think that President Biden does that in a malicious way. I think President Biden is doing it in a way that he's trying to express compassion and and empathy. Biography.com on Joe Biden uh, talking about what went on in his life. Nelia, his first wife, held down the fort as their life accelerated, giving birth to Joseph Bo Biden III in February of 1969, Robert Hunter Biden in February of 1970, Naomi Amy Biden in November of 1971. Meanwhile, Joe's first attempt at politics proved successful with his election to the Newcastle County Council in 1970. Two years later, Nelia assumed a leading role in Joe's campaign against Republican J. Caleb Boggs, for the U.S. Senate, serving as what her husband called her brains of the operation. When the election day dust cleared, the not yet 30-year-old challenger had become the second youngest person ever elected to the Senate, leaving the Bidens to wonder what could possibly come next in their rapid rise in politics. The answer came on December 18, a Monday that began with Joe heading to his temporary office in Washington, D.C., while Neelia remained at their new home in northeastern Delaware, with the intention of tackling some Christmas shopping. At approximately 2.30 p.m., Neely was driving westbound on rural Valley Road in Hokesson. The three children accompanying her in the family station wagon, she pulled the car past a stop sign and directly into the path of a tractor trailer headed full steam along Route 7 to Pennsylvania. 
According to reports, the impact sent the station wagon hurling at some 150 feet into an embankment. The family was pulled from the wreckage of the car, rushed to Wilmington General. It was too late for Nelia and 13-month-old Amy, who were pronounced dead on arrival. The two boys were luckier, though Bo sustained a broken leg and Hunter a fractured skull. I mean, he's been through it. I'm not asking him, what am I saying? I'm not sure what I'm saying. I'm not asking him to ignore, to not draw on the reservoir. He is uniquely qualified in these moments. He's uniquely qualified to draw on having been in those shoes, to know what that is like. And that should not be ignored. That is an asset to be utilized. But it's got to be done appropriately. I don't think... My own opinion, you'll tell me, and I hope you're going to handle this discussion in, in the dignified manner in which I'm trying to present it. This is not a moment for you to call and trash President Biden because you don't like President Biden. I, I do not want to hear the cheap shots. But how can he draw on his experience without leaving these families thinking that he spoke too much about his own, his own loss, his own son, And the watch thing, I mean, we've dispensed with. Don't look at the watch, Joe. Don't look at the watch next time. No matter what the hell is going in your mind, don't look at the watch. I I think the answer is to speak of of how uh, he knows what loss is like, but not to speak with specificity as he did last Thursday. I thought it last Thursday. I didn't want to discuss it last Thursday when he spoke in detail of being the father of an army major who served for a year in Iraq and before had been in Kosovo as a U.S. attorney for the better part of six months in the middle of a war when he came home diagnosed like many with an aggressive... It was too much. It didn't feel right to me at the time. I bit my tongue. Um, But if Matt Viser is writing about it and people are discussing it and these families are now reflecting on what went on in Dover, then I can't ignore it. Take a page out of Abraham Lincoln's book. I know how weak and fruitless must be any word of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming, but I cannot refrain from tendering you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the republic they died to serve. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. The Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds. Listen to Michael Smirconish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 